Hello and welcome to the Generous Marriage Podcast. Hi, I'm Ziv Wabir. And I'm Shachar Erez. And together we have this wonderful podcast that can help you, motivate you, encourage you, and even share with you tools that will allow you to make your relationship more generous. And specifically for today, we have a very special interviewee and she wrote the book, Buddha's Bedroom. That's a very interesting topic by itself. And we're talking about Dr. Cheryl Fraser. Who is Dr. Cheryl? Wow, Dr. Cheryl Fraser is such an impressive person. She is a clinical psychologist and a sex therapist and a Buddhist teacher. And she has a, such a beautiful integration of the uh, Buddhist theory with practical and um, applicable things you can do in the bedroom, in your relationship. And she's a great interviewee. I think this is one of the best interviews we've had. Well, I, I think that it's just uh, wonderful how she is a bridge between something very spiritual and something very practical like sex. And I really like how she motivates people to not just fall in love, but also stay in love again and again and again, uh, make the, this decision through mindfulness. Let's learn all about these practical tools that can help you keep your love life at a, at a peak uh, for a long time. See you at the other end. Enjoy. Welcome to the Generous Marriage Podcast. Fight less, feel appreciated, and have a deeper connection with your spouse. And now your hosts, Shachar Erez and Ziv Raviv. Hello, Generous Marriage Podcast. Hi, I'm Ziv Raviv. And I'm Shachar Erez. And together we are here in Season 2 of the Generous Marriage Podcast. And we have such an honor today to interview Dr. Cheryl Fraser. Dr. Cheryl Fraser is actually a Buddha's sex therapist. She's also a psychologist and the author of Buddha's Bedroom. Wow, Cheryl, how are you? Hello. Oh, I'm fantastic. Thank you. It's a delight to be here with you both across our countries and across the miles. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. You have quite a fascinating role in this world to help people with, as a Buddha's sex therapist. And you also wrote a book that is very intriguing, Buddha's Bedroom, where you actually talk about the connection between mindfulness and intimacy. Can you give us a little bit more about, first of all, what is the book all about? Certainly. Behooves us to go back into why any of us go into this field in the first place working with couples and trying to make monogamy hot and exciting again, trying to fall in love over and over with the person you're already with, instead of being in a commodified kind of society where we trade in a spouse for a better version. People trade up their car every year and there's almost, and I'm being a little facetious here, but unfortunately there's too much truth to it, this sense of that when we're unhappy, we look for someone new instead of something new. And I come from sort of two paths of training. One is traditionally as a clinical PhD psychologist, scientist. I was accepted to medical school, but I became more and more interested in, in the journey of the heart, the spirit, and the mind. And the second stream I have, in addition to the clinical work as a couples therapist and psychologist and sex therapist, is my training in mindfulness meditation and in what I would call Buddhist philosophy, which is a way of looking at why we're happy or not happy. And the essential teaching there is that we're happy or not happy in the mind. It's not our spouse that makes us happy. It's not our chocolate milk or latte this morning that makes us happy. 
It's the state of mind we bring to each and every moment or encounter or breath or meal or kiss or orgasm that determines whether we are happy or not. So the book, Buddha's Bedroom, is my attempt to bring together these two streams of teaching about how to create happiness and passion in our mind, in our life, in our relationship, and in our bed. So that's what it's about. And the audience, I believe, is your audience, which is those of us, three of us are included in this, who are in a longer-term relationship. And we may, if we're not careful, end up in something I call in the book and in my teachings, marriage incorporated. Now, what do I mean by marriage incorporated? That's where a lot of us are guilty of this. I've been guilty of this at times, but where we're treating our relationship, our long-term commitment, our marriage, common law, et cetera, we're treating it as though it's a business without meaning to. And what I mean is we're running the business really well. The children are being raised well. They're getting lots of kale in their diet. We're getting them to their various routines. The mortgage is getting paid. I'm high-fiving you on my way out the door while you run off to do your part of keeping our corporate marriage going. But what we've lost is the couple. What we've lost is the connection. What we often put so far down the priority list that it falls off at 11 or 12 at night when we fall into bed exhausted is you and I connecting through conversation, connecting through romance, connecting through sexuality. So many of the topics you so skillfully cover on the Generous Marriage Podcast. So I want to help people move out of Marriage Incorporated and back into Passion Incorporated. That interest, that mindful attention, that spark and interest that came naturally when we were falling in love. I often say falling in love is easy. Staying in love takes mindfulness. And that's where I charge each of us with the responsibility to bring our own happiness to our relationship instead of sitting around expecting you to make me happy, you to turn me on, you to excite me again. A little bit like petulant children that are waiting to be entertained. So instead, it's a bit of a challenging teaching, but a very liberating one which is it's up to each of us to make our relationship fantastic. Of course, we want our partner to be involved, but ultimately happiness resides with us. This is really interesting. I love this marriage incorporated. Like, I don't want that. Really, I don't want to have the marriage incorporated version. I want to keep the passion. I want to fall in love every single day. Is it something that you can do in a relationship, even if your spouse is not on board yet? That's an excellent question. The short answer is yes. You know, the ideal, and why wouldn't we hope and yearn and try to create the ideal, is that both partners will be involved and be bringing to the table an interest to say, hey, we have this thing. It's our relationship between us. And we're not treating it like a living, breathing thing that needs tending and care. We're kind of taking it for granted, hence we slide into Marriage Incorporated. So ideally, I'd love both people to be involved. However, that's often not the case, which your wise question points to. So because my happiness ultimately resides in here, one of the other things I teach people, I think this is the subtitle of one of the book chapters, is don't change your mate, change your mind. So if I have a mate who's saying, no, I'm not going to read a relationship book. No, I'm not going to listen to this fabulous podcast interview. Sorry, I'm going to do what I do. I can still start to find my mate interesting again. I can start to work on my own mind In the book, I have exercises that some are for to do solo, and some of them are ideally to do with your partner. But if not, you can still be bringing a change. If we change 
how we're looking at something, in this case, our beloved's partner, that we can do all by ourselves, whether or not we're able to change our partner. Let's change how we're looking at it. And let's start where we are. If we're not ready to leave the marriage, it's marriage incorporated. We're frankly bored. Our sexual passion is low. Our lovemaking's infrequent. The romance feels like a distant memory. But we like our spouse. We have a good time on our annual vacation and we parent well. Some people say to me and you, well, that's good. We're fine. And I'm fond of saying fine isn't enough. This is your, your romantic bond. This is arguably the most precious chosen thing in your life. Please take it more seriously and more lightly and with more play. And even if your spouse won't play ball, you can still start to make some changes. Don't change your mate, change your mind. I love that. This is something that you mentioned there are some exercises involved and obviously they're better when done together. But uh, you also mentioned your background in studying deeply the, the philosophy of Buddha and mm-hmm. how we create happiness within us. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how can a couple do something which each of them takes responsibility for their own happiness and maybe even is more mindful for that? Like, to me, it sounds like wearing eyeglasses that are pink, trying to look in, into day-to-day life with a little bit more positivity, but there's more structure to that in your curriculum, in your philosophy, in your book. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. And I'll resort to someone wiser than I for this brief teaching, and I'll resort to the teachings of the Buddha as we take it as a mental training philosophy. The Buddha taught what is essentially the four facts of life. He called them the four noble truths. And the first one is is that everything changes. And I don't think any of us can dispute that. We're all going to die. We get maybe 100 years. The flowers on the table in front of me are starting to wilt. Everything changes. Okay, I think we'll probably all accept that as a truth. The first fact of life, everything changes. However, we all know from our life experience that things don't always change in the way we want them to. We experience some changes as positive. We experience some as negative. The obvious are cancer, death, tragedy, negative. Winning a lottery, falling in love, getting the dream job we always wanted, positive. But let's take it more simple than that. And this is a bit of a tongue-in-cheek example, but it helps illustrate the teaching of how we can train our mind toward happiness and therefore our more happiness in our love affair. Let's say at the end of this interview, the three of us had to go somewhere else and we all needed to go get in our car and drive somewhere. So we finish up, we say our warm goodbyes and we head out to our car. And let's say someone has left a bouquet of flowers on the hood of the car. That's a change, correct? And the mind probably likes that change and finds it positive. So the mind says, yay, I got flowers. This is lovely. And we feel happy. Now, let's say we reverse, we go back up to the car, but now, bit irreverent, I apologize, but I do have a sense of humor, that there's a bag of dog poop on our car. There's a change. We experience that as negative. So we say, oh, yuck, there's dog poop. This is lousy. Now I'm not happy. Now, according to the facts of life of Buddhist philosophy, there's been a change. The problem isn't the change itself. So your happiness doesn't reside in flowers or dog poop. Your happiness resides in your mental reaction to it. So if you go up and see flowers, oh, that's funny. There's dog poop. How bizarre. I wonder how that happened. And I'm still happy. I've moved into the second fact of life or the second noble truth, which is we are only unhappy or suffering or or miserable or crabby when we do not like reality. So things change in ways we don't want. Dog poop. 
And if we don't like it, we are now creating our own unhappiness. The dog poop is benign. It's our reaction to it that's the problem. The third fact of life says, great, now we know why we suffer. It's because we don't like some of the changes and we fight against them. We want to micro-control reality in order to be happy. It will never work. I challenge each of us watching and listening. How well are you doing with trying to control reality, your spouse, your job environment, your neighbor's loud lawnmower when you're trying to have a nap? Is it working for you? Is changing reality, trying to control reality working for you? We all roll our eyes and some chagrin say, no, it's not working. That's the third thing. I'm going to apply this to romance in just a second. The fourth thing says, okay, look, things change. That's the first truth. The second truth is sometimes they change in ways we find positive and some in negative. The third truth says, if we accept the truth of things changing, positive and negative, instead of fighting it and trying to control it, we can be at peace, ease, and in love, regardless of what's happening. The fourth fact of life says, that's a lot harder to do than it sounds. It's a simple idea, but it's difficult to do. Probably each of us here had something happen today that was annoying or we didn't care for. And we reacted to it. Oh, darn, the milk's gone off. Or, oh, rats, uh, that important thing I wanted didn't come through. But if we can catch our mind at that moment and settle it into the truth of reality, milk sometimes goes bad. Great meetings sometimes fall apart. We can still be happy. This is the sunshine under the clouds. I developed that metaphor in the book when I go over these four facts to lay the foundation of, this is the Generous Marriage Podcast, how we can then enter into marriage and love generously using those four facts. So when you disappoint me because you didn't bring home cat food today and you said you would, and I actually texted to remind you because I know you're forgetful, you walk in the door, I say, hey, babe, welcome home. Maybe we have a little, little kiss. I say, have you got you know kitty cat's food? And you say, oh, darn, I forgot. Boom, there's a moment. There's a moment to practice mindful loving, as I call it, which is I can either be upset about reality, dog poop, no cat food, or I can say, oh, okay, that's my sweetheart. He, she's forgetful, whatever. I'll pop into town and get some cat food myself. It's a very simple teaching and it's life-changing. If we take charge of our own mind and our reaction to the changes of reality we can't always control, we can be happy no matter what's happening. We can be happy whether or not our spouse gives us the most romantic anniversary date we've ever had and makes us feel like the most important woman or man in the world, or if they forget our anniversary. They're just changes. And if we bring a mind of, well, sweetheart, you forgot my anniversary. You owe me a great weekend now, baby. Instead of fighting, we're in alignment. Instead of in disconnect, we're in loving. And that's a brief teaching of a fairly deep topic that we can all apply tonight. Tonight when sweetheart comes home and you notice a small irritation, a small bit of reality you don't care for, can you bring your mind in alignment and say, it's fine. Underneath the clouds, the sun is always shining. And if we can dissolve the clouds of our mind's stories, we can inhabit the light of love and passion and generosity and forgiveness and connection underneath. I'm very impressed. I think the Buddha himself would have been impressed to hear <laughs> the, the Four Noble Truths uh, translated this way. And still, I'm curious, how does that imply to the bedroom? How do you, does that relate to passion? That's a heck of a good question. And it's probably the most surprising thing about the work I do. 
And actually why I was asked to write this book and why I was honored to have Jack Cornfield and his wife, Trudy Goodman, as some very important Buddhist teachers, of course, to endorse the book with a foreword, because nobody's talking about sex and Buddhism. No one's talking about passion and sexuality in Buddhism, which surprises me because so much of suffering or discontent in Marriage Incorporated is around the lack of sensual, sexual, and romantic passion. So I applied in a number of ways, but probably many of the listeners are at least familiar with the idea of mindfulness. A subset of you have a mindfulness practice. It's fine if you don't. But what is mindfulness? At essence, that's bringing your mind to pay deep attention to what's actually happening. I want to relate that to an experience all of us had in our sensual or sexual lives early on. Imagine or recall when you were, say, a teenager or a young person and you were first falling in love with a first partner and you were, as we would say in the vernacular here in Canada anyway, making out or necking. You were laying often on a couch when your parents were asleep upstairs or watching television and you were exploring each other. But because of your choices and age, you probably weren't being fully sexual. Maybe it was sort of, you know, from here up was allowed. And laying on that couch, I vividly remember this with my first love. We would kiss and again, necking. I don't know why we called it necking. Necks weren't particularly involved, but kiss and nibble and tongue and play for an hour, for 90 minutes. And if you all recall, and you're nodding, because we recall the sensual erotic intensity was almost unparalleled since. Every fiber of our being, our mind, our mindfulness, our attention, and our physical erotic turned onness, our arousal and desire were focused on lips and teeth and tongue. And we could stay there literally for hours. Why? That's sensual mindfulness. That's being focused where all distractions fall away or at least fade into the background. And our primary focus is fully engaged with our five senses and our mind is focused on here and now. That means if I've kissed you thousands of times in the last 23 years, if I can bring my mind into alignment with this present moment and I can show up here and now and be focused, I will experience that kiss with this sort of eroticism as though I'm kissing you for the first time. That's in our mind, not in our lips. And it's not in, well, when I kissed you for the first time, I kissed my spouse on our second date at a restaurant. We were talking, he leaned across and he kissed me. It caught me off guard and it was wildly erotic. My whole body and my energy, in terms of tantric sexuality, we may or may not have time to get to that, responded. And yet if I were to kiss him right now, I might be, whatever, because I haven't brought my mind back into it. Novelty is created in this moment, not just because you're actually literally new to me. And this is something that is not really taught. And most of us have given up on feeling that kind of passion again, which at its most destructive can open us up to affairs with other people and temptation for something new, right? Wow, this is deep stuff. I love the definition of mindfulness as some deep attention to something that is actually happening right now. The be here now philosophy that I think is so important these days. And there are so many reasons why you might not do that because you have distractions and because you're busy and you probably are very tired with the kids waking you up in the middle of the night yeah. and the boss is driving you crazy and sending you emails in 11 p.m. Why does he do that? And 
between all of this mess, your spouse is giving you a kiss and you're not even there. You're literally not there. So I love how you describe and taking it into being here now in sexuality or in intimacy. I want to experience a bit of mindfulness like that. And let's ground it in reality for the listeners on, well, okay, that's all fine and good, but how do we do it? So you made an excellent point here. The mind is inundated more so in the last 10 or 15 years, as we know, than even before with input. And as you said, being fatigued, putting the kids to bed, just everything, the inundation of information, the mind is not thinking necessarily about sexuality. So let's take your example. I want to teach everybody listening something I call desire bypass. And I'll give a little bit of the research on it in a moment. But you speak to one of the biggest complaints in reasonably happy couples who have a good marriage incorporated, but very little passion and perhaps very infrequent sexuality, which is, I'm just not in the mood that much. There's a desire disconnect. One of us wants to be sexual. The other one's not interested or worried or distracted. And what so often happens, which you just alluded to, is partner one might approach partner two. Let's say partner one is uh, scrambling eggs for a quick lunch and worrying about their tax return they have to file tomorrow and they're at the, uh, at the stove. Partner two comes up behind them and slips her arm around their waist from behind and kisses them on the back of the neck and says, hey, babe, I've got about an hour. What do you think? And so often in long-term relationship, if we're early dating, we turn off the darn scrambled eggs and we dive into the bedroom. But in long-term relationship, it's like, no, not right now. I'm not in the mood. What happens is usually a screeching halt. It's over. Now there's hurt feelings, there's rejection. This is hardly new information. We've all experienced it on one end or the other. Desire bypass, which I relate to what we were just talking about, bringing our mind into the moment, using our mind to turn us on. Let's replay that scenario. Partner one is literally not in the mood. They're scrambling eggs and thinking about taxes. And unless they've got a weird kink we don't know about, that's not turning them on. So fair enough. Partner two is either sexually aroused in the body, physiological arousals, the body response, or mentally desirous in the mind. I describe that more in in my work, but for now that will do. Partner A, egg scrambler, isn't. Desire bypass is where I teach couples a rather quippy phrase. I say, never say, I'm not in the mood ever again. And they say, but what if I'm not in the mood? I'm scrambling eggs. I say, fair enough. But instead of saying, I'm not in the mood, which is a cold stop, say, hmm, not right now, ask me later. Now you've left the door open. And as we can all anticipate, just hearing the difference between I'm not in the mood or no to not right now, maybe later, it keeps us emotionally connected. What is desire bypass? This may surprise some people listening, but desire bypass is the instruction to start making love even if you're not in the mood. Probably not right then, but maybe an hour or two later or that night, you might say, babe, I got nothing. I'm exhausted, but I'm willing to give it a shot. Now, okay, that's not a movie romance line, but it's a real line. I had a patient in my office this week who said, this is her, uh, come on to her wife. She says, honey, have you got your mouth guard in yet? I mean, that's what it's come to, but it's become a joke between them. It means, hey, oh, you're in the mood. It's not particularly romantic. For them, it is. It's fun. Desire bypass looks like the following. We start making love even if one or both of us are not in the mood, we don't feel physiologically turned on or aroused, and we don't have mental desire. We might be distracted. I'm going to share an important piece of research here, and it's by a researcher called Rosemary Basson, and her work on the female sexual arousal cycle is very important for anyone uh, listening. 
And she has found that in the majority of long-term couples, they start making love from a place of sexual neutrality. What does that mean? It means we start making love when neither of us are in the mood. We just start making love because we have a Monday night sensual date. We start making love because it's been two weeks and we're getting a bit embarrassed about it. We start making love because we'd like to feel emotionally close. And although our body isn't turned on, we're pretty sure that if we make the right moves, we'll end up having some satisfying encounter and feel better after. So I want to reassure everyone listening, don't wait. I'm going to be a little explicit and straightforward here. Don't wait till you're horny to make love. That's a very useless thing for the majority of long-term couples. I actually promote a desire bypass, meaning if I'm not in the mood, start anyway or make a date for later. Just do it to borrow a slogan from Nike can be a good sexual commitment between us. And I've been strongly advocating lately something so simple, and my sweetheart and I have initiated it as well. I practice what I preach. We have a weekly sensual date, and it's on a certain night of the week. And at the bare minimum, we will be in a sensual sexual encounter on that night of the week. And often maybe once or twice more, but often not. I travel, we're busy, we have you know all the things going on we all have. But it's become a real delightful thing. We'll sort of nudge each other and have a wink, say, hey, it's Monday. It's like, woohoo. And we're not always in the mood. One of us might be tired. There are backaches. There are all sorts of real world things. And yet we honor our sensual sexual commitment by bringing mindfulness here and now. Let's start touching. Let's start kissing. Let's have a shower together. This isn't novel information, but I know you know as a couples therapist as well, that what we then hear from people when we propose something as simple as committing or scheduling your sexual encounters, at least some of them, people say, oh, but Dr. Cheryl, that's not romantic. I want to be spontaneous. And I say, you know what's not romantic? Never making love because you're busy, you're tired, and it's falling down the priority list. So to bring this back, just to kind of loop it together, mindfulness is about taking our mind away from the distractions, the demands. And by the way, let's all honor that that's not easy to do. It takes training and support. It's a very easy concept. It's difficult to do. But with training, we can start to bring our mind out of worrying about the taxes or trying to remember what we need for the business meeting tomorrow and show up and maybe create 20 minutes, 40 minutes to say, I'm going to be as mindful as possible with you here and now in our erotic life, in our communicative life, in our love life. And I describe a number of exercises in the book and in the work I offer to assist us to do that. Some mindful sexual touch exercises, some mindful eroticism exercises, staying conscious at orgasm. Many of us swoon into fantasy at orgasm and we're in our mind making love somewhere else with someone else to get us there instead of showing up in the intensity of the feelings here and now. And that actually can deaden the felt experience of the orgasm. It can still be pleasant, but to be fully present with the simplicity of touch. If everyone listening right now, and the two of you as well, take the fingers of one hand and close your eyes for a second and gently stroke the top of your other hand and focus on the sensation. What do you notice? A lot. Say more. 
I notice the sensation at the top of the hand that I'm touching. And I notice more sensations, you know, in other parts of the hand. And does it feel pleasant? I was going to say that some pleasure is coming. Yeah. Simply because you took a few seconds to focus on the experience of touch, the sensual, sensory experience of touch. Imagine making love that way at least some of the time. It's okay to have our fast food sex. I call it, again, aforementioned, apologized for a sense of humor, but I say the typical long-term sex life is nipple, nipple, crotch, good night. We've got our routine. It's the same every time. It works. It's, it's functional. I'm not opposed to it. But if we call that the fast food sexual encounter, we can say with the sort of mindful touch we all just explored for a few seconds, imagine if once a month, more if you wish, we said, let's take an hour and really touch and really show up and do our best, because it takes training, to bring our mind into the full experience. We can make pedestrian typical sex with our beloved, our long-term partner, we can light it up again. And we can, at least on occasion, fall in love as though for the first time, have some of that intensity we were all remembering of our first making out in our erotic explorations as a younger version of our current self. Wow, I love this idea of desire bypass. I'm so thankful for you to also base your the tools that you share and your ideas on research, on actual science, like at the Rosemary Bassan uh, research on, on the female uh, cycle. We also do a lot of research ourselves on basing our ideas and tools on, on actual science. And this is stuff that is real. I can personally testify as a man, you know, the desire bypass is a good practical thing to be aware of that it's, it is possible. It is possible to create connection, to create a sexual intercourse with your spouse, even though it wasn't the perfect conditions to begin with and it, there was no moonlight coming through the window or candlelight or whatnot. Yes. And can I just offer a very specific technique based following from what you've just said? And it's very simple. And again, I'm going to be a bit explicit, but it's important to be explicit instead of euphemistic. I'm going to give two scenarios. And these are both heterosexual couples. It applies to all pairings, all genders, all relationships of two people, or for that matter, three people if it's a polyamorous committed relationship. But I will use a hetero example because it's just an easy way to put it forward. So we've got a, let's say, typical heterosexual couple and he awakes in the morning with robust erection and he's undistracted and he's feeling sexually turned on. And she awakes in the morning, generally, unless she's been having an erotic dream before waking, generally her body's not at all turned on when she awakens in the morning. And she's often a bit tired and already thinking of getting the children up or the things that need to happen. If the time is available, you don't have young kids clamoring at you. I do suggest to couples, if they're willing, and many are reluctant but willing, is if he's willing to say, look, sweetheart, you just lay there. I'm going to pleasure you. I'm going to give you oral sex, use my hand, use a toy and get you turned on, even bring you to orgasm. And are you willing for me to play? And she's like, babe, I am so tired. You can try. And he does. And her body will often arouse and wake up. They can have quick, beautiful sexual encounter. And as I say, move into the coffee part of the morning with a smile on their face and their heart more open because it's so neglected. And I know the two of you are completely on board with this, but I want to really emphasize it for everybody listening. 
the sexual contact is the one thing that is different between you and I, if you're my romantic partner. It is the one unique thing we have from all of our other deep emotional, psychological connections. And if we don't make love very often, we're missing out on one of the glorious aspects of love, of sex, of spirit, of connecting. And when we don't tend to this garden and it withers, it's a terrible, terrible shame. This goes the opposite way. I want to share a quick couple I worked with. He was a very busy business person. They had a very robust, energetic sexual life in their first many years. Then came their first child, their second child. His work pressures went up. He was very preoccupied with work. He had a very sexually energetic wife. She loved sexuality. Her sex drive was higher than his, which is not at all uncommon. And she was saying, babe, you know, we're not having fun. We're not playing. We're not doing what we used to do. And he could not get his head out of work. He couldn't relax. And he was so distracted. No mindfulness. They came up with a plan that when he got home from work on the nights they wanted to make love, he would have a long, hot steam shower and attempt to kind of relax his mind and, you know, relax his muscles. And then after about 10 minutes, she'd join him in the shower. And she came up with this idea in session with me. She said, you know, babe, I'd be happy to go down on you and help you be less distracted. And he said, did you just offer to give me a blowjob in the shower to help me, you know, get in the mood? She said, I sure did. And he's like, I think I'm good with that. And here's the thing, we need to ground it in reality. He needs the shower to start to calm his mind and body. He's not turned on. He's not in the mood. She gets in, he's not in the mood. She plays with him. Sometimes he arouses and sometimes he does not. Sometimes he's got a big pressure in his head and they made that okay. Sometimes he's turned on. Sometimes they then go into either full love making and intercourse or just playing around with their bodies or snuggling naked after the shower. And other times he's like, you know, thank you, but it's not really happening. Let's go snuggle. Let's watch a movie. It's fine. But what they're doing is not letting the lack of desire, the lack of arousal set the stage for their sexuality. They're choosing to prioritize it as we've been discussing together here. I like wow. that. I find that it's such a common uh, challenge for couples to, to keep away the stress from, from interfering with their love life and finding a way to transition from work mode, from mission mind to a relationship, to intimacy. That's yep. such a great uh, practice. Thank you. Yeah, oh, wow. We have so much more to talk about and maybe yeah. we will do that in a future uh, interview. But for now, Dr. Cheryl Fraser, I really want people to know how they can find you and your book, Buddha's Bedroom. Give us the information, please. Sure, sure. I mean, if people Google the book, it's published in the States and Canada and available elsewhere. Buddha's Bedroom, The Mindful Loving Path to Sexual Passion and Lifelong Intimacy. It was just published this year. They can find me online. It's pretty simple. Just my name, www.drcherylfraser.com. And I want to direct people, if they visit the website, they can go to the Buddha's Bedroom page and there's some free videos where I talk about tantric sexuality, free video where I talk more about this desire and arousal disconnect and, and how we can work with it. And there's also some audio meditation, some mindfulness practice that relates specifically to the work we're talking about together, which is applying mindfulness to our romantic and sexual life. And people can listen to those and get a sense of mindfulness practice they might want to do solo if they don't have one yet by following those audios or together with their couple, with their partner. And upcoming in fall 2019, I'll be debuting uh, my flagship much anticipated, at least by a few of us, online course for couples where for an eight-week online course with live weekly coaching with me and numerous downloadable lessons, 
I call it home play, not homework, because it's like, say, who wants to work on their relationship? You know, but you can play with it. You can learn and we can connect details of that in the show notes, I'm sure. But just keep bringing love into your life, everybody that's listening. If you're interested in this sort of teaching, I uh, send out free weekly mini videos and articles. You can sign up for those on the website as well. Because like with anything, I think consistency helps. So getting a love reminder, as with your work here on the podcast and the work and webinars you two do, just getting those reminders to bring us out of complacency and marriage incorporated and remind us about passion and say, oh, here's a little five minutes from uh, The Generous Marriage or here's a little five minutes from Dr. Cheryl to go, right, yes, this matters to me. This is a vital part of happiness. What we will do is just to make sure people get it correctly, we also put on generousmarriage.com the links to Dr. Cheryl Fraser's website. And also once later this year in 2019, when the course comes live, we'll make sure that you hear all about it on the website and on our uh, email list as well. This has been a pleasure, Dr. Sherry Fraser, to interview you, talking about topics that are very important, how you, know, you can become mindful for your happiness in intimacy, in relationships, the desire bypass. I just love it. And mm. thank you for all that you do. Thank you for your book. And we will be in touch later on. Guys, thank you for listening for yet another episode of the Generous Marriage Podcast. Thank you. Wow, that was a good interview. Thank you, Shachar. There's a few things to take here. What would you take from this interview, Shachar? Wow, so many. It's hard to choose just one, you know. I think I'll focus this time on, on, on how she said it. Don't change your mate, change your mind. Such a beautiful way to put it that, you know, the, the negativities we, we see in our partners, the things that annoy us. Instead of changing our partner, we can actually change our perspective, work on ourselves and, and use mindfulness and use a Buddhist teaching to change the way we look at our partner and actually not see that as negativities, but find the positive in it. So, so generous. And that reminds me also of the tent metaphor from the previous episode with Alison Armstrong. So if you didn't hear that one, you should definitely check it out on thegenerousmarriage.com. What I take from today's interview is the concept of the desire bypass. Now, the desire bypass can sound a little bit intimidating because there's something mechanical in it and there's something that ignores how much you know, you're in desire at the moment. But it's basically just the concept of love dates or sens sensual dates, as Dr. Cheryl Fraser puts it. And the basic idea is that we need to give priority for lovemaking. That's what we need to do in order to ignite and reignite the passion in the relationship. It's not the only thing, but it's definitely a good thing to do. I think that it's uh, important to you know, remind us and to make it something that people talk about, like seriously, It sounds something that maybe you only talk in a very closed rooms about the idea of that of love date, but we want to change that. We want to make it something that people can talk about it and make it easy to practice. Hey, Shachar, we actually made some really cool gift for our listeners. What is it? Yeah, one of the things I love about Dr. Cheryl is how she integrates Buddhism and sex. For some reason, that's not very common. And so we took her ideas and took it another step and made a cool infographic of the Four Noble Truths adapted to the bedroom, the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha taught. 
adapted to the bedroom. I think we made a pretty cool job here. And what, what I like about it is that as everything that we do, we put on the sunglasses of generosity, like that colors everything in nice pink colors that are happy and beautiful. And uh, when you are looking for generosity, you find it. You find opportunities to be generous everywhere. So what we've made with this graphic design, this PDF, is something that you can actually print and hang it on your wall and look at it or send it to your lover or even just send it to your friends at work. It's not the, one of those things that uh, will embarrass anyone. It is simply uh, like uh, a variation of the things that Dr. Cheryl Fraser said in the interview today, and I think you'll love it. Um, where can people find that uh, PDF? On our website, generousmarriage.com, and, uh, episode six of season two. Wonderful. And then next week we have an interview that will be interesting for a little bit of like a, a range of people that are in the beginning of the building of creating their own generous marriage. Uh, the very, very beginning starts with finding the person that you want to establish a relationship with. And we have an interview with the easy dating coach, Mike Goldstein. Mm -hmm. That is very surprising. Some of the tips there will be very efficient for you if you want to start online dating. But I think that there's a few things there that can help you fall in love with your married, with your couple, uh, even though we're talking with, an, with a dating coach. The approach in general, I think, can teach you a lot about your own decisions. Yeah, well, even in long-term relationships, we should date every week. And he gives some good tips about dating that uh, even people in long-term relationships can, can enjoy and use. Love it. So guys, see you next week on the Generous Marriage Podcast. And I hope that you don't forget to go to generousmarriage.com and download that wonderful PDF we've made you. Either way, see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. See you next week.